belong there after all. Uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Like said, uh, Joy said, my name is Colton Quarter. I've been a member here uh, two years and some change. Um, and we talked a couple of weeks ago about God's love for God as we examine God's love according to Scripture. And today we're going to be thinking about the relationship between love and judgment and authority. Uh, I think you guys have a handout. We might deviate every now and then from the handout. Trey asked me to give it to you like two weeks ago before I gave it to him two weeks ago so he could print while he was out on vacation. Uh, so I gave you the handout before I actually wrote the notes. And so if it changes a little bit, uh, bear with me, but I'll highlight those. It's still going to be a pretty good guide for our time together. So let's think first about love and judgment, the relationship between love and judgment. And I guess first we should start by asking, do love and judgment go together? Is the relationship between the two? You know, I bet if you asked any random college student down the street walking around on campus, they would look at you like you're crazy. Yeah, they'd say, of course they don't go together. In our world, love and judgment are basically opposites. They're like two chemicals that when you mix them together in chemistry lab, the whole thing explodes. You know, we say things like, if you love me, you can't tell me who I can and can't marry. I thought you loved me. Shouldn't you want whatever it is that makes me happy? Besides, Jesus was a pretty loving guy, right? And I think he said something about not judging somewhere. But here's our dirty little secret. We know that love and judgment go together. And we know that they go together because we love and judge at the same time all the time. Judgment, in that sense, is unavoidable. Judgment just means that we're weighing or measuring, evaluating something to see whether or not it stacks up against whatever standard that we are setting. So we make judgments about small stuff in our lives, right? We're going to get an omelet in the cafeteria, not the waffle. We're going to watch The West Wing on Netflix and not The Office. It's a pro tip uh, for your uh, quarantine binging. And our lives are defined by bigger judgments, aren't they? Um, I'll go to this school and not that one. Uh, Pick this major, date this person, have this child or not have this child. Worship this God or another one. You get the point. Life is made up of judgments. And all these judgments are tied inextricably with who or what we love. Our loves discriminate. We know that. This, not that. Him, not him. Her, not her. So what's the real problem here? It's not that we are offended by judgments per se. It's not even that we're necessarily offended by other people's judgments, right? As long as their judgments agree with our own. That's the real issue. We say we don't like judgment, but what we really don't like is when others' judgments contradict our own. Whenever they come and they don't affirm what we want them to affirm, us or something that we do. And that is exactly why God's love and judgment is so offensive to us as sinful human beings, right? God's love is extravagant and it's free, full of grace and mercy, but... In doing so, in coming towards us in salvation, God also calls us out. The love of God calls us out and shows us who we really are. We remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about God's love being God-centered. And that's the first thing that offends us about God's love because we are us-centered. So whenever we find out that there is this supreme being in the universe who everything orbits around, that offends us because we've been living our lives like we're that supreme being, the highest good that the the world should orbit around. Uh, We want everything, love and judgment included, to be us-centered. 
Um, but we have to, whenever we encounter the living God, come to grips with the fact that everything's not about us. It's about God. Doubly offensive is the gospel of this God that has justification by faith alone at the heart of it. So salvation only comes through renouncing any ability or worth that we have on our own to make ourselves right with God. It says that we are not enough, we don't measure up, but that Jesus did, right? And that he did so perfectly. And the only way we can be justified or declared right, declared righteous by God, is when we turn away from ourselves and trust in Jesus' perfect obedience, his ability to measure up, his worth as our own. That's the only way that we can be saved. So the gospel, this greatest, the greatest message of love ever given, calls us out. It, it shows us that we aren't enough in and of ourselves. It judges us by telling us that unless we're united to Jesus, and unless his identity becomes ours, then we don't stack up, and that offends us. And then you have the church, right, which is a group of people that have believed this gospel. They've come to see that all glory belongs to God, and it functions like a counterculture, right, a, an institution on earth that upends earthly wisdom with the ethics of heaven. And so even as the church reaches out in love towards a, a world that's lost and dying, God's judgment is right front and center, right? It's unavoidable. Now, we usually think of God's judgment as just the bad news, right? We think of uh, eternity and hell. We think of God slaying the wicked whenever Jesus returns. Uh, but we actually need God's judgments to make sense of the world. And that way, the good news is that God judges, that God is just, that there is someone who is giving meaning and vitality to this life. Um, since God's judgments make sense of the universe, we can live in this life where we know so often bad deeds do go unpunished, right? Ultimate justice is rarely, if ever, done. But since God and his judgments define reality and we are driving towards a day when all things will be, made, will be laid bare, we can have hope, right? Um, we can know that every bit of sin and injustice is either on the last day going to be punished eternally on sinners in hell and God's wrath, or will have been punished on the Son of God whenever he took uh, the sins of his people on the cross. When you think about it, there really is something beautiful about the Bible's teaching on hell. Bear with me. Uh, when we understand what the Bible says about hell, we begin to actually see how great and glorious God is. So God's worth, how eternally worthy of praise he is, is proclaimed and displayed by his wrath, his righteous indignation towards sin. God responds in judgment because uh, sin against human life, uh, he responds to uh, sin against others in wrath because human life is precious. And even more so, he responds in wrath because he is precious. So to quote Lehman here, when we grasp the biblical doctrine of hell, life is more precious, the stakes are higher than we could have ever imagined, and God's love and glory are greater than you ever imagined. So when we understand the goodness and the rightness of God's judgment, it actually is good news because the universe makes sense and there's an overarching purpose that everything is driving towards. So God's judgments are actually good and make sense of the universe. And the church is that institution on earth where God's judgments are declared. So if you want to think about life, uh, it's kind of like a store, where all the price tags are mixed up, right? So um, the things that are actually cheap have an expensive price tag on them. The things that are expensive, right, that are truly valuable, you can get at a discount, at a bargain. 
So instead of valuing things and judging things like we, like God does, which is the way that they are, we misplace the price tags, right? Um, and again, the cheap becomes costly and the costly becomes cheap. Well, Scripture comes in with the right judgments, right, with the correct price tags and shows us what everything is truly worth. So to use the language that we've been using, the Bible corrects our fallen and sinful judgments with the good and right judgments of the Lord. You know, we seek the praise of man, but God's word tells us to seek the glory of God, right? We are driven by selfish ambition, but the Bible calls us to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. And God has given the local church the responsibility to imbibe and to model and to declare the Bible's judgment. So the, the church is actually where you start seeing the price tags rearranged and, and put where they ought to go. You see in the church, God's people valuing the things that are truly valuable and testifying to the world that this is important, not this. That, that is not important, and this is. This is the church's job description. Declare and conform its members' lives to the judgments of heaven, right? We want to be, in that sense, a picture of heaven on earth. Since the church was created by Jesus to represent him, people should look to the local church to hear and to see his judgments. And we have lots of different ways we do that. We're going to talk about five. Lots of ways that we display and declare the judgments of God. So first, we declare God's judgments in our preaching. We declare God's judgments in our preaching. So we declare from the pulpit, right, whether it's Brad or it's Trey in a couple of weeks or whoever, uh, we declare that there is good news, there is bad news, and we set out what the righteous life looks like for those who have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ. We also declare God's judgment in our prayers. So in our prayers of praise and confession and lament, whenever we get around to doing those, they bring attention to the things that are most valuable, to the things that the Lord is most concerned with, right? It sets the ag our agenda as the agenda of heaven. And in so doing, we are doing a very uh, unhuman thing, unfallen thing. Namely, we're confessing our dependence on God whenever we come to him in prayer. We declare God's judgments. Third, when we sing, when we sing. We're judging one another when we sing. And I don't just mean how I hawk from the balcony and judge the people that do crazy things with their arm. Watch out, I'm watching. Um, to quote Lehman, oh, that's the wrong thing. I'm not going to quote the same thing to Lehman again. Uh, remember, musical worship isn't a solo experience, right? We're not just all in our worship pods, just getting in our feelings with the Lord together, and everyone else just so happens to be there. We're singing to each other, reminding each other of what is true according to God's words as we sing God's judgments that we find in the scriptures back to him in praise. So we declare God's judgments even when we sing. Four, we declare God's judgments when we practice baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? The two ordinances that Jesus has given to the church to mark off the people of God from the world. So we're essentially saying whenever we baptize somebody or give people the Lord's Supper, look at these people. They belong to Jesus. And when we remove someone from taking the Lord's Supper, right, excommunication, we are warning them and those like them that if you persist, if you keep on in your sin and don't repent and turn to him, uh, then there is judgment that is coming. Sort of like a road sign as you're approaching a steep cliff, right? Stop, 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 stop. That's what the church does in church discipline. And then fifth and finally, we declare the judgments of God when we live lives of holiness together and when we're apart. So we live as Christ's ambassadors. We represent his judgments in our words and in our deeds to our neighbors, right? Before a watching world. 
our lives should bear witness to God's love and judgments as we as a, a people collectively and we as individuals pursue what is righteous and disavow and flee from the things that are unrighteous, right? So there's that onus for us to live holy lives, right? To, uh, to not speak, do, feel, act in the same way as our non-Christian neighbors because we present this picture of who God is in his love and in his judgment. Love and authority do go together. We know that. And whenever they coalesce in who God is and how he allows us to love and judge one another in appropriate ways, we actually see that it's for our good. Any questions about love and judgment? Any questions? It really is cool if you do your thing in the singing. I'm not going to. Just joking. Any questions? All right. We'll rock and roll. Love and authority. Our second point, love and authority. We talked about love and judgment. And man, if you thought that we don't like love and our judgment mixed together, times that a thousand whenever we talk about love and authority. When we try to mix love and authority, we're like, okay, maybe you could convince me that love and judgment go together. But whenever you talk about not only people making judgments uh, about me, now you're talking about people making binding judgments about me, judgments that I'm meant to submit to. No way. That doesn't feel too loving. But again, it's because we don't understand authority. We don't understand how good a gift that it actually is. We don't understand how authority is an expression of the love of God. That's actually for our flourishing because, again, we want to be autonomous. We want to do our own thing. We don't want anyone to put any shackles on us. Uh, but the reason they feel like shackles is because we ourselves are actually enslaved to our own sin, right? Um, God's authority is good when understood rightly. And it's actually hardwired into creation. So God authoritatively created all things. And in so doing, he created human beings in his image to rule and exercise authority uh, as uh, his vice regent, sort of as his minions in a, in a good sense, in, a, in the kind of despicable me sense, right? They do his bidding under his authority. Um, and really essential to being a human being is possessing authority and exercising authority in a way that reflects the character of God. That's what we're supposed to do. And we see God giving this responsibility to people created in his image with sort of two guidelines, two purposes uh, for, uh, for authority, how we're supposed to wield authority. Uh, and see, as we think about these, if you can spot how they are loving, how they tend to uh, the good of other people. So at first, in creation, authority was supposed to be used to create and grow and help human flourishing. So authority gives life, right? That, that word, the root of that author, uh, giving, um, giving life, giving meaning, shaping. Um, authority is not supposed to be self-focused, but others-focused. Instead of being self-serving, good authority reaches out in service to others. Now second, good authority also teaches others how to use their authority. So it not only, it, it begins to, to delegate, right? Um, authority isn't meant to dead end with one person, like a power grab. Using authority rightly means seeing others grow in their ability to exercise the authority that God has given them. So again, to sum up via Jonathan Lehman in his book, The Rule of Love, good authority binds, but in order to loose. It corrects in order to teach. It trims in order to grow. Disciplines in order to train. Legislates in order to build. Judges in order to redeem studies in order to innovate. Good authority loves, 
Good authority gives. Good authority passes out authority. So authority was meant to be for the good of others and used in the hand of God to cause us to be who we are supposed to be before him. But, the big but here, we know enough to know that that's not often how authority is used. We know that the good purposes for authority have been thwarted, right, have been corrupted by sin. Adam in the garden rejected the love of God so that he could love himself most, and in so doing, rejected the authority of God for his own authority. Right? I say this because whenever we rebel against God in sin, it's, we're claiming glory for ourselves. We're claiming the right to be autonomous, to rule ourselves. We know we actually don't, right? God is still sovereign. God is still the Lord, and we're rebelling against the entire purpose of the universe uh, and it really is futile, right? We, we set ourselves up thrones that, that aren't really thrones. Um, and all of this abuse of authority that we see in our experience is rooted in self-love. So we misuse authority whenever we use it uh, out of a love for ourselves. Because the people under our authority are transformed from people that we are supposed to serve into people that serve us, right? We dehumanize people into objects that only have value insofar as or find value because of what they can do for us, or how they can satisfy this or that sinful desire. We can see that in authoritarian governments all across the world who oppose their citizens to gain wealth and power. Unless we as Americans think we're high and mighty, we can see that as we read our textbooks where uh, men and women who are black in this country were dehumanized in order to justify stealing them from their homes, shipping them across the Atlantic, and forced into centuries of forced labor, right? We see it today in debates on abortion, where our culture lines up behind the idea that anything, even a child that gets in the way of what we want, must be eliminated. Sinful humans abuse uh, authority to dehumanize others and to accrue power or wealth or, or whatever it is that we seek to accrue. So that is, that's how we most often will experience authority in this fallen world, but but just as authority was corrupted by the fall and human sin, authority has also been redeemed by Jesus, the second Adam. Right? The eternal son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and became the God-man, Jesus Christ. He modeled perfect godly authority where Adam failed. He never sinned and he never used his authority to exploit. Instead, he used his authority to actually lay down his life in service to others, by taking their sin on his shoulders, by suffering God's wrath in the place of them if they would turn from their sins and trust in him for salvation. And when Jesus got up from the grave, that announced and brought in this new age of the Spirit, whereby whenever we are born again, whenever we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are now able to exercise authority in the way that God created us to. He's redeemed authority so that the gospel allows us to stop using authority for ourselves to make much of ourselves, and to start using authority to love others and to make much of God. He redeems authority so that we can use authority in the way that it was meant to for the good of others. And as we wield that authority, we really do so in three different ways. We do so in love and by submission and in faith. So let's go through those. Love, submission, and faith. First, we love. As we exercise authority how God would have us do, we love. Every bit of authority that we exercise must be done out of love first for God and then love for others. So police officers, parents, and pastors, all 
different authorities, but they should all come from the same source, love. When we love ourselves most, we'll use others as tools to serve us, but when we love God most, we become tools used to serve others. So we use authority in love. As we exercise authority, second, we submit. We submit. If you can't follow, you can't lead. If you are not able to follow, you are not fit to lead. Remember that, guys in the room, okay? And girls, if your man can't be told anything, right, if he doesn't want to submit to anybody, then drop him because he's not humble enough to lead you like you need him to. A good leader is first a good submitter. If you want to be a pastor in this room, guys, and you constantly buck against authority, you don't like other people to tell you what to do, then you're not going to be a good pastor. You're going to use that authority the same way that you want to exercise on you now, right? You want to use it for yourself. And when it conforms to what you want to do, you'll go with it. And if it doesn't, then you'll ignore it, right? Setting everybody on a road to disaster. If you can't follow, you can't lead. A good leader is at first a good submitter. And you'd be surprised that as you submit to authority, you end up accruing more authority, right? It's not... You don't do that just so that you can have more authority, but you'll find in your life, oftentimes, the more you submit, the more you get opportunity to lead because the more fit you are to do it. And then third, we exercise authority with faith. And what I'm saying is that the effects of our leadership won't always be apparent, right? They won't always be readily apparent. If we think that our authority, our leadership has to yield certain results within a certain time frame, then we're going to be more tempted to overstep and abuse our authority to try to manufacture those results. So we use authority. We exercise leadership in faith. All right. At this point, this is where your handout is wrong. I was going to talk about, under this section, godly authority in the local church, which I will do, and was going to have a section on unity and diversity. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't make the final cut, so don't be confused if we don't go over that part. So, but let's think about godly authority in the local church. Authority in the church. So, like I said earlier, the local church is an embassy. And I trust that you know what embassies do. Uh, embassies represent the interest of a nation in a foreign country. So they have the authority to declare uh, true citizens of their home country, even while they are living in this other, uh, other land. The church is like an embassy because the church has authority by God to represent the interest of heaven on earth. And Jesus gave the church the authority to declare who true citizens of the kingdom of God are who has really believed the gospel, and who is it that walks according to that profession. So that means that the church is the Christian's highest spiritual authority on earth. We obey God by submitting to a local church, right? We obey the Lord that we can't see by submitting to the church we can see. That's where our commitment to the invisible God takes concrete shape, right? Because we can claim all day that we love God. But if we don't love our brother that's actually here, and whenever it comes from being ethereal to being actual, that's where our real love for God uh, is put to the test. Now, pop quiz. You think, it's Sunday, and you're giving me a quiz. I don't know if anybody still does pop quiz. I feel like that was more on TV shows than ever in real life. But uh, who in the church has most authority? That's our question. Who in the church has the most authority? So if the church is the highest authority on earth, spiritually speaking, who in the church has the most authority? Your first instinct might be to say the pastors, right, the elders. Uh, and that's not a bad instinct at all. In fact, God's word says in Hebrews 13, 17, that we are to submit to our elders, right? So they have a real authority that doesn't come from us like elected officials, but comes directly from the Lord. But the Bible is equally clear that elders' authority isn't final authority in the church. 
So they have a real authority, but it's not the final authority. They can't just say, we're going to bring this person into membership, or we're going to adopt this statement of faith to declare what the church believes the gospel is, or we're going to remove this person from membership. Uh, actually, that final authority rests in the congregation. The congregation, the, the gathered church members, are the ones that have the final authority to declare the who, who really belongs to the kingdom of God, and the what of the gospel, what the true gospel is. You know, we honestly would probably be, be better off, it'd be tough, but it, we'd be better off if we ditched the language of joining churches altogether, only because it makes it sound optional. You know, you can either opt in or opt out based on if you think it will be a good fit for you. But the local church, as I said, is designed to be the spiritual authority for the Christian on earth. So it's really hard to imagine calling yourself a Christian and not being a member of a gospel preaching church. We don't join churches as much as we submit to them. It's where we show up and report to duty. The authority of the high king of heaven is actualized in and through the church. So church membership is really where love and authority meet. Church membership is where love and authority meet. It's where we see it played out most practically. So we commit ourselves to the authority of others as we join the church, right? We're saying, I'm going to come underneath your authority and you mine as we make the vows of membership. And that trust that we're placing in these other people is rewarded with the kind of love from fellow members that really keeps us loving Jesus. Commitment and institutions tend to freak us out, right? We don't like whenever things get serious, but, 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 but they actually provide safety. Commitment and institutions, authority structures provide us safety and well-being, right? Your friends in the world are liable to leave whenever things get dark, right? It's fine whenever you're talking Arkansas football. It's time. It's fine whenever you're just watching Netflix together. It's the weirdest way to say Netflix of all time, Netflix. Um, my wife is going to climb me so hard for that. Um, you know, that's fine, but whenever things get serious, whenever someone in your family or you uh, get a cancer diagnosis or whenever uh, you're going through a hard time with your mental health, then sometimes friends are fickle and they leave. But in the church, you have a community of people who have promised, no matter what, I'm sticking with you. I'm going to stick it with you no matter what, sort of like the promises made in a marriage, Right? For better or worse, for richer or poor, from so on, we have that security of knowing we've made this covenant together, and even when things get really, really bad, when things get rough, I'm sticking with you, right? And they also serve, these relationships serve as kind of spiritual guardrails in saying that, oh, I'm going to use my authority over you. We're going to use our authority over one another to protect each other from going off the rails spiritually, right? We're not going to let each other fall off a cliff. I'm going to call you to the carpet. I'm going to call you to account. I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to, uh, we're going to move as a church to uh, put you under a church, to put you up for church discipline saying, hey, you can't do this and say you follow Jesus, right? Uh, we're going to use all of that God-given authority to protect you, to protect one another. And this kind of congregational authority goes perfect with elder authority. So congregational authority, the authority we've been talking about, that the church has the, the final uh, say in matters of doctrine and discipline and membership and even in our budget, right? Um, that kind of authority, the keys of the kingdom that Jesus has given in Matthew 16, 18, exercised in 28, lies with the congregation to make that final decision. Uh, it goes perfectly with elder authority, like we said, which is a real legitimate authority. What do elders do? They teach. They exercise their authority through shepherding and teaching. And what they do is they equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? So the elders don't take the job of exercising the keys of the kingdom, of, 
of binding and loosing, of making these authoritative judgments. But what they do is they teach us, the congregation, to make those decisions in a way that honors God, right? They help us to mature into those who embody and who declare God's judgments and authority rightly in the world. So uh, the only real math equation that I understand in this world is this. Elder authority plus congregational authority equals healthy, growing Christians, right? Elders don't take our jobs. They teach us how to do our jobs. Elders teach, and the congregation makes those final ruling decisions. Elder authority plus congregational authority equals healthy, growing Christians. Those two forms of authority, different, coalesce into a authority cocktail that actually is the remedy for all that ails us, right? That's what we need uh, as a church. Church structure, church polity, which is just the same word for how churches organized and governed and structured, actually works to make us more like Jesus. Uh, and so good authority in the local church makes us into who we are called to be. We're being renewed into the same image together as we behold Jesus' glory. And the authority structures that God has invested in the local church help us to do that. Now, that's all I have. Any questions other than the four that I provided on the handout, which I don't remember what they are. I'm sure they're good, though. Uh, any questions at all? here for a while. No questions at all about how this plays out practically. Okay. Well, I will pray, and then I think you guys go and do your things in your groups. Appreciate your attentiveness. I'm going to run out of the back about as fast as I can, not because I think any of you suck or are necessarily uh, going to give me COVID-19, but I do have to get on a plane to Boston next weekend, and so I have to be extra careful. I'm not being rude, um, so don't think he's coming in and out. Um, if you have any questions, please, uh, even though I'm not going to be available immediately following this, send me an email, which I think my email is on the handout, right? Yeah, send me an email. I would love to. Send me a text. Uh, my uh, number is in the directory, right? Uh, and uh, whenever my wife can uh, have and I can have you over in our driveway to, uh, to talk love and judgment and authority at what everyone loves to do uh, with, their, uh, with their weekends and with their evenings. Right? Okay, let's pray. God, we do thank you that you call us out. We thank you that you don't let us persist in our sin and in the illusion that everything is built around us, that the whole universe is supposed to bow down to us because that destroys our souls. Uh, and instead, you give us the greatest gift, which is uh, the gift of yourself. And you give us your son and you take our sins away and you give us a new heart uh, so that we can follow after the resurrected Jesus and exercise authority in a way that shows others what you're like and, and helps others to uh, move towards uh, fulfillment in Jesus Christ and works towards more and more joy as the gospel extends to more and more people, which extends uh, to more and more thanksgiving to all that you are and all you've done for us in your son. We pray that as we go from here, that you would help us uh, to use the authority uh, that we have in a way that's godly to take responsibility for one another. Uh, and we pray that as we uh, preach and sing and pray and uh, your judgments uh, there in the 1030 service, that you would help us to glorify you and do so with joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.